0: Welcome to Story and Star Wars. I'm Alistair Stevens. It's been a long time coming, but it's finally time to delve deep into the latest numbered Star Wars sequel, Star Wars Episode 8 The Last Jedi. But this isn't just an episode on The Last Jedi, this is also the beginning of what I'm considering the second season of Story and Star Wars. I've spent the last year talking on the internet about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien in the podcast There and Back Again, about J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series in the podcast Dear Mr. Potter, about comic books and comic book movies in the podcast Excelsior, and lots more besides. But it's finally Star Wars season again, and I'm finding myself with a renewed desire to discuss everything that Star Wars is and, crucially, what it has become over the last few years. So Story in Star Wars is now on a regular schedule for at least the next few months. Every other Friday, you're going to get a new lecture on some aspect of the Star Wars universe, from the treatment of age and death throughout the series, to a close reading of the opening crawls and establishing shots in each of the movies, places of power for the light side and the dark, to the integration of tangential stories like Rogue One into the broader Star Wars canon, and of course, the rumors and speculation surrounding Jon Favreau's new Disney live-action series and lots more besides. The next episode of Story and Star Wars after this one will be released on May the 25th and will be a first reaction podcast dedicated to solo a Star Wars story. I'll follow that up with some deeper thoughts and analysis on June the 8th, which will give everyone a chance to see the movie a few times and think through the implications of what I'm confident at this point will be a strong film. If you enjoy Story and Star Wars, and if you would like to see the show continue on a permanent basis, and maybe even move to a weekly format, then you can feed the podcast machine by heading over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia and pledging your support for this show and for all the work that I do. I love podcasting about stories and storytelling. I love podcasting about Star Wars, and your support makes it all possible. So if you have a dollar or two to spare, then I'll be very grateful and gladly make more things. So that's an overview of our schedule going forward. For now, let's turn our attention to Ryan Johnson's addition to the Star Wars canon, the provocatively titled The Last Jedi. My personal response to The Last Jedi has been extremely complicated, which is one of the reasons that this lecture has taken so long to appear in your podcast feeds. The first time I saw the movie back in December of 2017, I absolutely loved it. Not without reservation and not without criticism, but with a huge and sincere enthusiasm for this bold new assertion of what Star Wars means and represents. The second time I saw it, just a couple of days later, I was surprised to find that I was left cold by much of the action of the film. Without the surprise and delight of the first experience, I began to notice problems with pacing and with structure and with character motivation. I was distracted more than I was enchanted and I began to question and doubt my initial response. The Force Awakens works primarily because it is self-consciously a Star Wars story. It echoes distinctly both A New Hope and the entirety of the original trilogy, but it isn't simply a recreation. It is a love letter to Star Wars, and demonstrates a profound understanding and sensitivity and affection. The more I thought about The Last Jedi, the more I identified similar elements scattered across the expansive 150-minute running time but there are also elements which stand in opposition to that understanding. Let's frame out the shape of the story so that we can talk more specifically. Brace yourselves. We open on Dakar in the Alenium system, home of the Resistance base we saw in The Force Awakens. The Resistance is fleeing an imminent First Order assault, which begins mere moments into the movie with the arrival of General Hux's fleet of Star Destroyers, including the Finalizer, and Captain Kennedy's dreadnought Fulminatrix. Commander Poe Dameron buys some time before assaulting the Dreadnought and destroying the defense turrets, leading to the assault of the Resistance bombers in a victorious but costly attack. It is only thanks to the heroism of Page Tico that the assault succeeds. In the wake of the assault, Finn wakes up, recovered from the injuries he suffered at the end of The Force Awakens, and he asks Poe where Rey is, which gives us the cinematic excuse we need to switch focus to Akhto, where we pick up directly from the end of the previous film with Luke Skywalker holding his father's lightsaber, constructed prior to the Clone Wars, passing into the care of Obi-Wan Kenobi to Luke on Tatooine, into the custody of Maz Kanata, to Finn, and then on to Rey, and Luke throws it over his shoulder. We're introduced to Luke's home on ahch including the local wildlife and the details of Luke's X-Wing underwater. Chewbacca visits with Luke, who realizes that something has happened to Han, and we cut back to the First Order with the reveal of Kylo Ren. Supreme Leader Snoke praises Hux for the pursuit of the Resistance fleet, then tells young Solo that he has too much of his father's heart in him, that he was bested by an untrained girl, and there is still, despite his best efforts and plans, hope in the galaxy and in the hearts of the Resistance. Kylo throws a temper tantrum and smashes his helmet. We are, at this point, less than 20 minutes into the movie, and I have to tell you guys, I'm exhausted. This isn't the first time that we've split a Star Wars story into three separate strands. Most notably, the climax of Return of the Jedi has a similar structure. But watching the beginning of The Last Jedi can feel overwhelming. In part, in large part. That's because we pick up so closely from the end of The Force Awakens. We get ten years between The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. Three years between Clones and Revenge of the Sith. Nineteen years between Sith and A New Hope. Three years between Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. A year between Empire and The Return of the Jedi. And thirty years between Jedi and The Force Awakens. How much time has passed between The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi? Well, if we judge from the Dakar storyline, a matter of days, if not hours, assuming that Snoke sent out the assault order immediately after the destruction of Starkiller Base. If we judge from the Ray storyline, literally no time has passed at all. So let's assume that the Millennium Falcon takes at most a day to get to Aktu at the end of The Force Awakens. And we're picking up right after the closing moments of that movie. To be clear, that works within the fictional frame. At least, there's nothing in the movie which causes a problem with the timeline. Though we might wonder where the Star Fortress bombers were during the assault on the Starkiller base, for which they were ideally suited, and which literally happened yesterday. A tangent, because I know I'll get emails. According to the Expanded Universe, the bombers and Admiral Holdo's ship, the Ninka, were actually on a mission during the Starkiller assault and were not available, so I guess we can forgive that one. The problem with the timeline isn't that it's inconsistent, it's that it's overwhelming. We begin with plots already in progress, and the lack of space between The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi means that we can't take any time to introduce the conflict or themes of this specific film. Contrast the closest pickup that we've seen up to this point in the Star Wars series, the plan to retrieve Han's frozen body from Jabba's palace on Tatooine at the beginning of Return of the Jedi. For all that we are picking up on an established cliffhanger, we're doing so after a year of growth and development, and we begin the story with clean lines. New setting, new conflict, new tone, new pace, new assertiveness. It's a continuation— But it doesn't directly inherit the energy or momentum of the previous movie. The Last Jedi, on the other hand, does. The Last Jedi, on the other hand, must. This film doesn't work on its own terms without a prior viewing of The Force Awakens. And even that isn't necessarily a problem. I'm not going to complain that The Two Towers follows on directly from The Fellowship of the Ring without a break in the action, but even the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movies take their time to settle the viewer into the new story. The explosive opening of The Last Jedi plays similarly to the equally impressive opening to Revenge of the Sith, but the difference is that Sith is spectacle, and The Last Jedi is structural, bearing the weight of the current and the previous movie. For all that it's broadly successful... It is a heavy weight for the viewer and it takes some time to settle into our first act. I'll take just another tangent to observe the one way in which the title The Last Jedi frustrates me. I don't feel, as some fans or critics obviously do, that it makes a promise that it doesn't live up to, or that it's uninspired, or that it lacks poetry. I actually rather like the title The Last Jedi, particularly in the light of some of the themes of the movie, which we'll get to in due course. Now, my frustration with the title is merely that it makes the useful one-word versions of the Star Wars movie titles more complicated than they need to be. Menace, Clones, Sith, Hope, Empire, Jedi, Force, Jedi, Jedi 2, Electric Boogaloo, last lacks a certain je ne sais quoi. For now, I am training myself to refer to Episode 6 as Return and Preserving Jedi for Episode 8. I can only hope that Episode 9 isn't entitled Hope of the Empire or Force Clones. Force Clones, probably with an exclamation point. Before we get back to the structure of the movie, let's acknowledge my most consistent problem with The Last Jedi, and the thing which really changed my understanding of the movie on that aforementioned second viewing. It is not the case, emphatically not the case, that Star Wars is incapable of delivering comedy. There are moments in The Force Awakens which I still find laugh-out-loud funny, never mind the rest of the series. The problem with the comedy in The Last Jedi is that it feels too often as though it's laughing at Star Wars and not With Star Wars. That is not to say that Star Wars is some holy, sacred text preserved in a tree worthy of our most serious and, if you'll forgive the pun, Poe-faced discussion. But slipping toward parody while you're also trying to play it straight is a recipe for tonal disaster. Poe's phone call to General Hugs at the beginning of the movie is almost charming, thanks primarily to the skill of both actors involved, but it's also playing off a mid-90s bit of Seinfeld-style observational comedy. Finn walking around in the Bacta suit is a little broad and physical from my taste, but it is at least absurd and fantastical and doesn't challenge our understanding of what the Star Wars universe is like. I don't hate the Porgs, but I don't love the Caretakers, for almost exactly the same reason. I'm not bothered by the milk-drinking scene, comedically speaking, and I actually rather like it, thematically speaking, more on that later, but the beat with the steam-iron spaceship when Finn Rose and DJ slip aboard the Supremacy, the throwing of the lightsaber over the shoulder in the opening movement of the film, Snoke hitting Ray on the head with that aforementioned lightsaber during their confrontation, Kylo Ren giving Hux an incredulous look when he repeats his command to concentrate fire on the speeders, Luke referring to a laser sword? These are jokes... ...about Star Wars... ...jokes at Star Wars... ...and while there are stories out there... ...which can encompass that comedic reflexivity... ...they require a kind of self-awareness... ...and self-consciousness and space... ...that Star Wars purposefully and powerfully... ...lacks. These jokes are like the... ...Dex's Diner sequence in Clones... ...referential to something that exists... ...outside the bounds of the Star Wars universe... ...and thus harmful to that fourth wall... ...and the investment of the viewer's belief. As I said... It's not the case that you can't make these jokes about Star Wars. If the steam iron spaceship sequence had been a joke on Saturday Night Live, then I would have laughed at it. Or chuckled, anyway, because I've already seen Hardware Wars on YouTube, which is where that joke originated. But including it in the movie is a shade too self-aware for a series which is stronger when the comedy emerges from consistent interactions between characters. Han in the detention block on the Death Star, or Finn and Rey and BB-8 on the Falcon in The Force Awakens. Anyway... Back to the movie. Rey follows Luke around, ahch seeing the life that he has made for himself here before feeling the lure of the great tree which houses the original Jedi texts. Luke asks her who she is, what makes her special, why she is here. Something has woken within her, a force maybe, and she needs a teacher. But Luke is not the man for the job. Back with the Resistance, the remnant of the fleet emerges from Lightspeed. Leia demotes Poe, noting that there were dead heroes on the mission against the dreadnought, but no leaders. The First Order fleet, including Snoke's flagship, Supremacy, appears, having tracked the Resistance through lightspeed. The battle begins. Kylo Ren leads the assault in his TIE silencer, which is a great bit of ship design, by the way, destroying the hangar of the Radus, the Resistance flagship. Kylo lines up an attack against the Raddus' bridge, but falters when he feels the presence of his mother... His wingmen, though, destroy the bridge, and Leia is blown into the vacuum of space. Kylo returns to the First Order fleet, while the Resistance fleet flees with sublight engines. The chase has begun. And that's the end of the first act, 31 minutes into the movie. The Resistance desperately flees with that real hope of escape. Rey has been rebuffed by Luke, Leia appears to be dead, and things look bleak but Leia, at least, still has a few tricks up her sleeve. Using the Force, she returns to the Raddus, surviving the assault which killed, among others, poor one out for Admiral Akbar. Luke slips aboard the Falcon while Chewbacca is about to enjoy his dinner of roasted porg and takes Han's lucky dice from the cockpit. He then speaks with R2, telling him that he is not leaving the island to rejoin the fight, but R2 plays dirty and shows him the original hologram of Leia. This is for me, one of the most powerful moments in the entire film. This demonstrates a genuine love and understanding and willingness to tap into the iconic power of the original Star Wars trilogy in particular. This is the kind of thing that we replicated and alluded to in The Force Awakens, but here in the context of The Last Jedi, we're not content with reference, with illusion. Instead, we're going to use the actual hologram. We're going to use the actual Yoda, though he doesn't look or sound quite as he ought, perhaps. Luke agrees to train Rey. Three lessons which will demonstrate why the Jedi need to end. Back on the fleet, Vice Admiral Holdo is appointed leader of the Resistance. She gives an inspiring speech about the importance of resistance, of defiance, and of hope. But when she's questioned by Poe, she tells him that he, impulsive and dangerous, is the last thing the Resistance needs. Finn, meanwhile, meets Rose while trying to sneak aboard an escape pod and get away from the fleet before Ray returns. Rose stuns him, but they quickly formulate a plan to foil the First Order's tracking device by something-something technobabble. They brief Poe, who agrees to the plan, but they need help getting onto Snoke's ship in the first place. They contact Maz Kanata, who gets a brief holographic cameo, but they need the master codebreaker in Canto Bight, a coastal city on the planet Cantonica. Ray and Kylo, meanwhile, have a moment of connection across the light years. Ray shoots first and asks questions later. They talk for a moment before Luke emerges from the house and leads Ray to her training. Ray gives him a somewhat inaccurate account of the Force. The Force, says Luke, is not a power you have. It's not about lifting rocks. It's the energy between all things. A tension. A balance that binds the universe together. And I have to say, as someone who has spent more time than I ought thinking about the mechanics of the Force, that word, tension really sparked my interest. We will have an upcoming discussion on how the Force works and how we are supposed to understand it in the light of The Last Jedi, in the light of this two-thirds completed new trilogy of Star Wars movies in the weeks to come. Rey reaches out with her feelings and senses the extremes of the island, of life and death, heat and cold, peace and violence, all manifested in the Force. She also senses a dark place beneath the island. The rock cracks beneath her and she falls. She was immediately tempted by the dark side, but Luke has closed himself off completely from the Force. Rey is as powerful as Ben Solo was, and Luke is afraid. Finn and Rose, meanwhile, leave the Resistance fleet. Kylo and Rey have another long-distance interaction, and the away team arrives at Canto Bight, the luxurious casino resort. They search for the Master Codebreaker, watch the farthier race, and Rose sees the iniquity and cruelty just under the glittering surface of Canto Bight. The great and the good, it turns out, are arms dealers profiting from the war. BB-8 finds the Master Codebreaker after a minor tangent with the gambler, but Finn and Rose are arrested for a parking violation. Ray meanwhile, trains with the Skywalker lightsaber as Luke watches her. He teaches her about the legacy of the Jedi. Failure. They became legends. They were prideful. Luke failed when he created the training temple. Ben Solo destroyed it, took some of the students with him, and killed the others. That, at least, is the truth from a certain point of view. Back with the Resistance, the medical frigate Anodyne is out of fuel and destroyed by the First Order. Finn and Rose are in prison on Canto Bight, where they meet the enigmatic DJ, who promises that he can help and trivially escapes their cell. Rose and Finn follow, escaping to the Fathir stables and meeting some of the slave children. Rose wins their trust with the symbol of the Resistance, of the Rebellion, and they escape on the backs of Fathirs, crashing through the casino and finally being rescued by BB-8 and DJ aboard a stolen ship, the Libertine. That, is the end of the Canto bite plot, the controversial Canto bite plot. More on that later. On Ark 2, Luke makes connection with Leia. Ray makes connection with a shirtless Kylo, and he tells her an alternate version of the events at the training temple. Let the past die, he urges her. Kill it if you have to. Ray then goes to the mirror cave, being pulled into a vision of herself in infinite reflection. Later they bond over no longer being alone and they extend their hands toward each other touching across the light years as Luke interrupts blowing apart the house and banishing the vision of Kylo Ray demands the truth attacking Luke and they battle for a moment before Ray grabs the lightsaber and ignites it Luke gives us the third version of events at the training temple he believed that Ben had fallen to the dark side and desperate had wanted to end the boy's life but he couldn't he failed yes but not completely Ray says there is still hope for Kylo and hope for the Resistance, noting that she saw his future clear and certain when they touched, despite the fact that we, the audience, did not get to see her vision. She offers Luke his lightsaber, but he refuses, and she leaves. Luke hurries to the Jedi tree, planning on burning it to the ground and the sacred texts too, watched by the force ghost of Yoda. He hesitates, and Yoda focuses, summoning lightning from the sky to strike the tree. Luke tries to run in to save the texts, demonstrating that he has not entirely lost his faith, but is blown back. Yoda tells him that he is still looking to the horizon, that he must pass on what he has learned. Strength and mastery, yes, but also weakness and failure. The greatest teacher failure is, and all masters are left behind by their students. Finn, Rose, and DJ approach supremacy, and DJ asks for payment up front, specifically Rose's Hazian medallion, the one which matches the one her sister wore. DJ demonstrates to Finn that the owner of the ship sold weapons to the bad guys and the good, and that there is no difference to the arms dealers, arguably to the people of the galaxy between the First Order and the Resistance. We cut back to the Resistance fleet to see the destruction of the Ninka. Poe confronts Holdo, who quotes Leia. Hope is like the sun. If you only believe it when you can see it, then you'll never make it through the night. Poe realizes that she's fueling the transports. He contacts Finn, who asks for more time. Rey, meanwhile, is also approaching Snoke's ship, ready to surrender herself and turn Kylo back to the light side. She is captured just as the Libertine arrives and slips through the shields. Poe, meanwhile, leads a rebellion all his own on the Raddus, capturing Vice Admiral Holdo. This beat finalizes the midpoint of the second act, with all of the power structures in each of our three plots now inverted. Finn, Rose, and DJ are now in the belly of the beast, as is Ray. Poe has taken command by demonstrating his leadership. We're 90 minutes into our running time, which means that the midpoint is something like 15 minutes or 10% of that running time over where we'd expect it to be. We'll talk more about the midpoint and the structural problems in the movie in just a little bit. BB-8 is disguised as a trash can while our heroes infiltrate the supremacy. Kylo, meanwhile, takes Rey to Snoke's throne room. They each assure the other that they will both turn and stand together. Holdo leads her own counter-rebellion on the Raddus and the bridge is sealed. DJ breaks into the hyperspace tracking chamber, where they too are immediately captured. This is, by the way, another possible midpoint depending on your interpretation. This is not a reversal midpoint like the distributed midpoints that we observed in the other stories, but rather a confluence midpoint. If that's true, then we're now 95 minutes into the story and the structural problems are compounded. That lack of clarity, what exactly is our midpoint, is perhaps the greater issue, however you cut it. Captain Phasma takes Finn and the others into custody. Leia breaks onto the bridge and stuns Poe, and the resistant survivors board the transports and flee the Radus. Leia and Holdo take their leave, the transports cloaked from the First Order sensors. Snoke demands the location of Luke Skywalker from Rey, but she resists. Poe wakes to find himself on the transport, and Leia shows him Crate, a nearby planet with an old rebel base on it. Holdo had a plan all along. She was more interested in protecting the light, says Leia, than she was seeming like a hero. On the Supremacy, DJ has betrayed the Resistance in exchange for payment. Hux orders the attack, and the transports begin to fall. Snoke has extracted the information about Luke from Rey's mind and shows her the destruction of those transports. She grabs Kylo's lightsaber and attacks, but she is no match for Snoke's power. Snoke spends a good long time leaning into the irony of Kylo Ren's new resolve, narrating his own demise as Kylo triggers the Skywalker lightsaber and kills the Supreme Leader, his true enemy. Rey and Kylo battle the elite Praetorian Guard in what is arguably the standout fight scene of the entire movie. After the battle, Kylo refuses to save the Resistance fleet, repeating again that it is time to let old things die. He offers partnership, wanting to bring a somewhat ambiguous new order to the galaxy. He confirms what Rey has always known, that her parents were nothing, and that she too is nothing. As the transports are destroyed, Holdo turns the Rattus around. Kylo and Rey, meanwhile, battle for the Skywalker lightsaber while Phasma orders the execution of her prisoners, but Holdo jumps to light speed, cleaving a path through the Supremacy and several of the other Star Destroyers, just as the Skywalker lightsaber is snapped in two. This is, for my money, the most impressive visual sequence in the entire movie. The stark destruction of the Supremacy, the sudden silence, and then the overwhelming sound that follows, It's breathtaking. Finn fights Phasma after being struck in the face and dropped into fire, but not before Finn self-identifies as rebel scum. Our heroes escape the supremacy as Kylo wakes, blaming the death of Snoke on Rey and ordering the assault on the planet, force-choking Hux to demonstrate his authority. This carries us into the third act of the movie. The conflict is now locked on the surface of Crate. This is the last stand of the resistance, and we're 115 minutes into our running time, or just over 75% of the way through the movie, which is actually the perfect point for the third act transition. If the second act is a mess, and structurally speaking it is, then the sharp cut into the third act is refreshing and revitalizes the movie's sense of pace and of purpose. Our heroes are reunited inside the old rebel base, which is immediately besieged by the First Order forces, including a battering ram cannon, which will punch through the blast doors. The resistance, the rebels, are trying to buy time for their allies to arrive. Using skim speeders, they take the fight to the First Order, but they are obviously and immediately outmatched, even with the assist from Chewbacca and Rey in the Millennium Falcon, who lead the TIE Fighters away from the battle. The skimmers attack the cannon. Finn is about to fly straight down its throat and destroy it before Rose crashes into him, knocking him out of the way. When he rushes to rescue her from the crashed ship, she tells him, that's how we're going to win. Not fighting what we hate, saving what we love. They kiss and the door to the rebel base is blown. I should say, actually, that those two events just happen at the same time. I'm not describing cause and effect here. Inside the base, Leia learns that no one is coming to help them. There is no more hope in the galaxy. The spark of rebellion is out. But then Luke shows up, looking significantly younger and better kept than he did the last time we saw him. He and Leia talk for a moment and he apologizes. He touches her hand, gives her Hans Dice before kissing her forehead and going out to face Kylo Ren. Kylo orders the AT-ATs and the ATM-6s to open fire on Luke, unleashing a hellstorm, but Luke emerges unscathed. Kylo lands and confronts him alone. Poe realizes that Luke is buying them time, and the rebels together realize that the crystal foxes, vulptices, have found another way out. Chewbacca lands the Millennium Falcon, and Rey finds the path from the base covered in rocks, which she, ironically, needs to lift. Luke tells Kylo that the rebellion is reborn that the war is just beginning and that he will not be the last Jedi And the rebels escape the caves to find Rey and the Falcon waiting for them Kylo attacks Luke and realizes that he was never in fact present on Crait Looking younger leaving no footprints in the salt We see Luke still on Achtu in a trance and he fades from sight in front of Kylo on Crait And on Achtu above the ocean in the light of a binary sunset Luke Skywalker dies, becoming one with the Force. Rey and Leia sense the death as Kylo moves into the base and finds his father's dice, which also fade. On the Falcon, our heroes are reunited. Poe and Rey introduce themselves to each other. It is revealed that the sacred Jedi texts of Ah ahch weren't in fact in the tree when it burned because Rey had taken them with her. Leia assures Rey that they have everything they need to rebuild the Rebellion. And back on Canto Bight, The slave kids we saw earlier are telling the story of Jedi Master Luke Skywalker. One of the boys goes outside, telekinetically pulls his broom to his hand, looks at the Rebellion symbol ring that he is wearing, and then looks to the stars. And that's our movie. I know that I spent longer than usual breaking down the beats of the action, but an understanding of the shape of this story is vital to our understanding of what works about The Last Jedi and what doesn't. The first act, despite its inherited problems, is tight. The second is a hot mess. The third is focused but ultimately incomplete in that Attack of the Clones, Empire Strikes Back, dark middle chapter kind of way. I should say that I'm actually rather a fan of much of Ryan Johnson's direction and Steve Yedlin's cinematography. There are parts of this movie in which it is effortlessly the best-looking Star Wars movie we have ever had. The lightspeed jump of the Raddus is jaw-dropping. The battle with the elite Praetorian Guard is ambitious and beautifully executed, as is the duel between Kylo and Luke. Pretty much everything that happens on Crait, in fact, is stunning to look at. Not least of all, the Voptuses, the internet's new favourite Pokémon. We get some generally excellent performances, sometimes because of the material or with an assist from the material. Mark Hamill, the sadly missed Carrie Fisher, Laura Dern, Oscar Isaac, Andy Serkis, and sometimes we get great performances despite the materials. Tom Gleason, Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, most of Kelly Marie Tran's lines, and some performances that just don't hit the mark at all. I still don't love Adam Driver's take on Kylo Ren, though I absolutely concede that this is a much more ambitious and complex and accomplished performance than we saw in The Force Awakens. Benicio del Toro's DJ never really works for me. It's an interesting performance, and I would genuinely like to see it in another movie, but he too often goes small when I want him to go big, and big when I want him to go small. Gwendolyn Christie is, again, completely wasted by this story, but after Phasma's death and return in The Force Awakens, I am happy to see her again in Episode 9 and hope that she gets more to do. So what is The Last Jedi about? Well, there's the rub, because after a dozen viewings and a lot of time thinking and talking about this movie, I'm still not sure that I know. I know what parts of this movie are about, and I think I know what the movie thinks that it is about, but there are so many thrusts toward thematic significance, and so few of them seem completely or even partially compatible with one another. So to gloss, heroism and leadership... War and peace, harmony and disharmony, hope and despair, failure and victory. The focus of the heroism and leadership argument is particularly powerful when we consider Poe's arc through the movie. He begins with a certain amount of authorial insistence as a trigger-happy flyboy, but he seems to mature until he can be the leader of the rebellion, no longer the resistance, needs by the time we get to Crate. Leia is... An unambiguous figure of clear moral and practical and logistical authority, she demotes Poe for his reckless Pyrrhic victory over the dreadnought Fulminatrix and draws the first and most powerful distinction between heroes and leaders, which might give us a glimpse of a deeper theme right under the surface of this conflict. Because heroes and leaders, when placed in opposition like this, are really representatives of their society. Heroes, by their very nature, stress the societal framework through sheer exceptionalism. Heroes don't obey the rules, and when the rules are not obeyed, society shakes. Society can suffer. Leaders, by contrast, unify. Leaders, by contrast, restore and replenish and reinforce those rules of society. A group of brave heroes, which, by the way, is exactly how the Resistance is described in the opening crawl to The Last Jedi, they can save the world but they can never build a new one. Construction takes leadership, which is apparently sorely lacking in the resistance. Which takes us to Holdo. I love Laura Dern's performance, and there are some magnificent moments for Holdo, if it isn't clear. By the way, the light speed jump of the Rattis is my favorite moment in the entire film. But Holdo is something of a cipher, something of a placeholder, She's withholding information from Poe specifically when, of all the people on the ship, she has the least cause to doubt him. Everyone on the bridge can see the status information about the tankers. Certainly, everyone who is actually fueling the tankers knows what is going on. Only Poe is being intentionally kept in the dark, and it's hard not to read it as some kind of personality clash, some personal problem between the two of them, some point being made which completely undercuts the thematic aspect of this conflict, if indeed there is a thematic aspect of this conflict. Her quoted speech about believing in the sun is a pretty piece of poetry, though I do wish that we'd been able to get Carrie Fisher's take on it too, and sadly we don't, but it doesn't actually work. It doesn't actually mean what she seems to think that it means. She is not asking for Poe's hope, She is asking for his unquestioning obedience. There is nothing stopping her from saying, hey, there might be first-order agents aboard, which is how they can track us in the first place. I have a plan, but I'm not going to tell anyone what it is for security reasons. Either you trust me or you don't. Either you follow orders or you don't. But believe me when I tell you, there is hope. Instead, she rejects that approach outright and demands instead a kind of unequivocal faith, which might work if you're a Jedi, though pretty emphatically the movie seems to believe that unquestioning faith is a bad thing for the Jedi too, but which has no place in a discussion of leadership and the social contract. It doesn't quite hang together, and I'm never sure if I'm failing to interpret the movie properly or if the movie just isn't communicating its point as cleanly and as efficiently as it ought. War and peace, meanwhile, is interesting. But the entire discussion of this particular thematic opposition rests in the aforementioned controversial subplot, The Elephant in the Room. Let's get into it. The problem with Kanto Bite is not the story itself, though, yeah, it's by no means a high point in the movie. It's most similar, I suppose, to the Jabba's Palace sequence in Return of the Jedi or the Utapau sequence in Revenge of the Sith. It's standalone, it's slightly unsure of its greater purpose, but it's fairly action-packed and not actually objectionable. It attempts to raise some more sophisticated political points than we usually encounter in a Star Wars story, but, well, to be honest, they're a little sophomoric. They're a little underdeveloped. Arms dealers and weapons merchants are the worst, and they're getting rich off a conflict in which they supply both sides, and DJ certainly draws a moral equivalence between the First Order and the Resistance. Hey, you're fighting over these points of principle, and all you're doing is firing expensive munitions at people. This is mirrored, potentially, and imperfectly in that aforementioned Poe storyline, with its repeated beats about jumping in an X-Wing and blowing something up, a solution to every problem which the movie, by the way, seems uncertain of. The problem is this. While The Last Jedi is clearly echoing The Force Awakens in regard to how little we care about it, the First Order's Starkiller base just destroyed multiple planets, including Hassanian Prime, the capital of the New Republic. And when I say just... I mean certainly less than a week ago. General Hux asserts at the beginning of the movie that the Republic is destroyed. Vice Admiral Holdo implies the same thing in her address to the Resistance following the attack on the Radus. Attempting to draw any kind of moral equivalence between the First Order and the Resistance is a flawed endeavor. And it speaks to a kind of political naivete that the weapons dealers of Canto Bite would be partying and celebrating as if everything was proceeding as planned when, at the very, very least, their largest or second largest market has just been destroyed. Now, yes, if you want to squint at the Canto Bight sequence and claim that the predatory rich are partying to dull the pain of the end of the world, then I might be able to see your point. But if that's true, then poor Rose comes off as even more politically and socially unsophisticated. She bears a heavy burden through the course of this movie. All that aside, the problem with Canto bite is not narrative, but structural. The entire subplot is contained in what should be the first half of the second act, and trying to stuff that amount of material into that amount of space, theme, world-building, comedy, horses, cute kids, Benicio del Toro, it exerts a powerful warping effect on the rest of the story structure. Because of Canto bite. We don't hit our midpoint until way later than we ordinarily would. And the complete beginning, middle, end arc of the CantoBite sequence stresses the first half of the second act too much. It forces the other plots out into the periphery where we can pay them little but lip service. The intercutting between CantoBite and the other stories is, well, it's flawed. Certainly, too many of the very short sequences in the movie, in this part of the movie in particular, feel perfunctory and obligatory, springing either from a desire to communicate necessary narrative information to the audience, or just to remind us that the other stories are unfolding simultaneously. I don't find that a problem in the first act, and hardly at all in the third, but in the second, this movie's lack of focus and the erratic pace of individual edits and scene changes leaves the narrative feeling gritty. Like... Sand may be coarse, rough, and irritating. I apologize. I said that Canto carries almost the entirety of the anti-war message in the film, and it does, potentially at least. What remains is given to Kylo Ren, but you have to want to see it. He may be recognizing the corruption of the old orders and the destruction of this ongoing, unceasing war in his desire to burn everything down, to let everything go, and to start anew. Unfortunately, though, he tries to lure Ray to his side by promising a new galactic order and doesn't ever take the very necessary step of outlining what that might look like. Is it more peaceful? Is it more free? Is it more egalitarian? Well, Probably not, right? But wouldn't it be interesting if it were? But without that opposition, without that stated counterpoint to this implicit theme of war, unceasing war across the galaxy... Kylo's storyline just doesn't carry enough weight. You can see it if you want it, but I don't think the movie asserts it. A subtle theme unfolded throughout the movie is that old story in Star Wars' favorite, harmony and disharmony. On Ark 2, Luke is living in near-perfect harmony with the environment. That is part of the reason that I don't hate the milk scene, or the fishing scene, or really anything that happens on Achtu. The only thing that I dislike on Achtu is the presence of the caretakers, which feels too heavy-handed, too cartoonish. They exist to take shots to camera as though they were Jim Halpert in the office. Canto Bight, by contrast, isn't just an oasis of conspicuous consumption and economic tyranny, but is also an artificially verdant paradise on a desert planet, where the local ecosystem has been turned to the designer's purpose. And it is no coincidence, of course, that the rebels escape the base on Crate by following the Vulpta recognizing and respecting the natural rhythms of this mineral-rich world. In the end, harmony brings peace. Harmony brings hope. When you stand in opposition to the galaxy, to the universe, to the will of the Force, then you only generate greater conflict. Ultimately, I see The Last Jedi as being primarily about service and the responsibilities of power. This isn't a hotshot fighter pilot dream of rebellion. Rather, we are seeing Poe and Finn and Ray and arguably even Kylo Ren mature into leaders, into shapers of their societies. With all of that said, the biggest problem with this movie is that The Last Jedi suffers from a lack of breathing room. It is too often frantic when it needs to be clear, too often insecure when it needs to be confident, and it never really seems to have a tight grip on what it is saying. By far, the greatest part of this movie is thrilling. It is mesmerizing, it is enchanting. As I said, fantastic cinematography, a great score, generally speaking, really fantastic action set pieces, awesome performances. This is a knockout Star Wars movie, but it's a knockout Star Wars movie from a distance. When you look up close, You find that grit, you find that editorial inconsistency, you find that thematic inconsistency. All of which leaves us with a movie that is striking, is bombastic, which feels important, and yet seems hollow, seems ill-formed, seems insubstantial, and seems ill-disciplined. I'm going to continue, of course, to think about The Last Jedi. I'm going to think about The Last Jedi in the context of The Force Awakens more and more, because for all of the narrative continuity between these two films, there is very little in the way of thematic or symbolic or metaphorical continuity between the two. Those metaphors which are continued are almost all the established Star Wars metaphors. Light side, dark side, lightsabers, droids. We've seen this stuff now, well, in eight movies, and we're going to see it in a ninth. I'm going to save a couple of thoughts that I have about the Force, what Luke has to say about the tension created between natural opposites, the presence of the Mirror Cave, the actual functioning of the Mirror Cave, the self-balancing rise of light or dark according to both Luke and Audley Snoke. I'm going to save those topics for an upcoming discussion in which we're going to explore directly the Force in the post-The Last Jedi world. I will say that Snoke being dispatched is a necessary reflection of Luke's more heroic death, where we had a nominal Sith and a nominal Jedi and their respective apprentices, kind of. Now, we're left with two powerful Force users who are not explicitly aligned with either the Sith or the Jedi, neither the dark side nor the light, and that leaves us in a very complicated place moving into episode 9. And that, I suppose, is the inescapable truth about The Last Jedi. It's why ultimately talking about The Last Jedi for the next year is going to be somewhat frustrating, because it just isn't a complete story. And we need the final chapter of this trilogy in order to make real sense of it, and to see how well it makes good on its promise. That's arguably less true of The Last Jedi than it is of either clones or Empire, But there's a real temptation to read The Last Jedi as the establishment of a new status quo for the Star Wars universe. Hey, we're back to plucky rebels and an all-powerful empire. But that isn't what the second movie in a trilogy is for. And I have no expectation that we are going to move into Episode Nine and tell a standalone story about this new world order. Only time will tell us where the momentum of The Last Jedi will carry us, though we will have lots to discuss between here and there. I'm out of time, so as I said back at the beginning of the podcast, this is just the first lecture in the second season of Story and Star Wars. I will be back with you in two weeks to discuss my initial reactions to Solo, a Star Wars story. If you have the time and if you have the inclination, and if you would like to encourage me to make more lectures like this, then please take a moment to head over to patreon.com pointnorthmedia and pledge your support. If there's enough enthusiasm and support, this podcast will become a regular feature in your podcast app of choice. Thank you all so, so much for listening. I assure you, we are not done with The Last Jedi. And we're also going to circle back around to that long-awaited follow-up Rogue One lecture that I discussed, gosh, maybe a year ago. All of that and more coming in the weeks ahead. But I will talk to you in two weeks' time about Solo, a Star Wars story. Until then, thank you for listening. And may the Force be with you.